0: This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Oh. Hello, I'm Michael Shorten, also known as Chicago Wiz, and this is episode 38. Reading Unearthed Arcana Classes, where we're going to talk about the Paladin, the Druid, and the Fighter. This series is where I'm reading through the first edition supplement of Unearthed Arcana for the first time in my life. I had never read it prior to now. And I'm seeing what may fit into my current long-running campaign that's been going on for 11 years and what might not fit into it. So, as always, anything on a podcast, this is all my opinion and what doesn't work for me, you may find actually does work for you. So I highly encourage giving this book a read. So last episode, we covered the Cavalier, and I thought that the Cavalier made an excellent example of how to take a base class like a fighter and tweak it for a specific design and purpose that adds some flavor to the campaign that fits the um, setting. I felt that the Cavalier for my campaign was a little bit overpowered, but it's been a great inspiration for me to start looking at my setting and coming up with subclasses that might fit specific lore and specific concepts in my campaign. If you go to my blog, which is at chicagowiz-games.blogspot.com, I'll put the link in the show notes, you'll see some posts where I've been coming up with some class ideas for my campaign there. So this episode, we're going to cover several more classes, and then next episode, we're going to cover the Barbarian. I've got a lot to say about both of that. So let's get into it. So if we turn back to Unearthed Arcana, we are up to page 16, where we're going to cover the Paladin. The Paladin started off in first edition AD&D Player's Handbook as a subclass of the Fighter, but Unearthed Arcana converts that to a subclass of the cavalier. Now, if you remember, or if you didn't catch the last episode, the cavalier is a knight, as you might think of a romantic knight or the knights who came up, you know, they, they were born into noble or royal stock and they became these fighters with a cause and a code of conduct. Think, you know, Knights of the Round Table, kind of thing. Um, the the Clair- or the Cavalier was very definitely aimed at that kind of archetype, and it makes sense why on Earth Arcana would say, okay, so the Paladin instead of being a specialized fighter is really a specialized Cavalier, and it also makes sense if you considered the implied setting of ad and Now, when AD&D 1st came out. There really wasn't much of an implied setting aside from some things that leaked over from Gary Gygax's Greyhawk campaign and a few of the concepts that had come from Dave Arneson's Blackmore. But as we get further into the history of first edition, you really start to see that implied setting come out. And although Unearthed Arcana was cast as system and setting neutral, well, not system neutral, it was AD&D, but it was setting neutral. There's really a lot of emphasis on Greyhawk, which also is not surprising considering that a lot of the source material came from ideas that Gary and others had put into Dragon Magazine. The Paladin being kind of a, a special subset of the Cavalier Makes sense. And, and you know, it kind of reinforces that trope of knights and paladins, you know, being a holy type of knight versus just a holy fighter. When we get into the subject of the paladin, and there's only a couple of paragraphs, but these are pretty impactful paragraphs. Because in summary, not only does the paladin have their special abilities from the player's handbook, of which there are many... They also, by virtue of being a subclass of the Cavalier, get all of the powers of the Cavalier. So we have a fighting machine with pretty significant bonuses for specific weapons from the Cavalier, horsemanship bonuses from the Cavalier, and some Cavalier abilities like invulnerability to fear, 90% resistance to mind-altering magic. Then you add on protection from magic, Laying on of hands to heal people, holy war horses, invulnerability to disease, bonuses on all saves, detect evil, cure diseases, turn undead. If you got a holy sword, you can project power, and at ninth level, you can cast cleric spells. A juggernaut of a lawful good god or goddess. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. That's quite a bit. Now, I I talked about this in the in a previous episode where uh, in the intro to Unearthed Arcana, Jeff Grubb insists that Unearthed Arcana and all of these classes were play tested and replay tested and whatnot. I gotta ask, what was the viability of having such a strong paladin as compared to? the other classes that are relatively unchanged. This seems like a huge, huge jump in abilities for what was already a powerful class. I mean, if you think about what the Paladin can already do, and then you add on all of the stuff of the Cavalier. Plus, on top of that, you know, the idea being that Paladins really need high scores. I mean, they need a 17 in Charisma, a Wisdom of 13, plus they need the abilities for a Cavalier which is uh, 15 in strength, dexterity and constitution, and a scores of 10 in intelligence wisdom. Okay. Those are pretty specific. Later on in our Earth Arcana, in the DM section, we're going to cover method five of how to roll up your attributes, which all but guarantees that for a given class, you'll get the values that are needed. I don't know. You know, I, I, I mentioned that the Cavalier was not going to fit in my campaign, and I really don't think that a, the Unearthed Arcana Paladin would fit in my campaign either. Of course, the two paladins that are already in my campaign, uh, <laughs> Brian's uh, Grell and uh, Logan's obram they're both groaning right now because I think they'd like to be these holy war machines. Um, I, I just don't think that, uh, you know, that that, that would fit. I like the idea of a paladin being the holy champion of a deity, and I've covered in a previous episode how I've tweaked the paladin subclass to fit specific gods and goddesses and deities, but I don't think that this would fit in my campaign, so I'm probably not going to use it. Okay, so then the next class that Unearthed Arcana covers is the druid. Now... This is going to be an interesting section because in just a little over a page, Unearthed Arcana redefines what, to me, the Player's Handbook was starting to set out the Druid as. You know, think of the the Druid as kind of the nature involved type of uh, spell casting Mystic. Unearthed Arcana takes that and moves in a direction that you might find surprising, but let's get into it. What Unearthed Arcana does to the druid is ostensibly take the druid from level 15 through level 23, but it's the way it does it that really uh, is interesting. And if you want to get to level 23, all you need to do is play in a campaign where 7 million hit points or i'm sorry seven million experience points are possible let's think about that seven million experience points that's a lot let's dive into this so if you remember from the player's handbook the highest druid is level 14 a quote lone figure known as the great druid the kind of the the, the uh, way that the Player's Handbook, the Core Rules set it up was that you had to combat through some levels in order to reach the Great Druid, and you were alone at the top. Well, what Unearthed Arcana does is to retcon this a bit and say, well, each area or land mass can have its own Great Druid, and over all of these potential great druids is a, quote, grand druid. Guess you're running out of uh, adjectives there. To become a grand druid, you have to go from one and a half million experience points to three million and one experience points. That is makes you a 15th level druid. You will be attended by yet nine other druids same as it was in 14th. And apparently this means that you are now outside of the hierarchy of the land that you came from, and you're over all Druids. But not really, and we'll get into that in a minute. The Grand Druid, as uh, for class abilities, gets six spells from each level. Now, originally for level um, 14... You had, uh, you knew spells from levels one through spell level seven. I think you got three spells at level seven. And what level 15 does is now says you get six spell levels from, from everything. So you are, you now know, uh, seven times six is 42. So you know 42 spells. Well, that's pretty powerful for three and a half million experience points. In addition, when you are serving in this role as the Grand Druid, you also get a bonus of six additional spell levels. So meaning that you could have six additional first-level spells, three additional second-level spells, two additional third-level spells, or some combination thereof that equals six. Now, Unearthed Arcana explains that the Grand Druid is, quote, the ultimate overseer of druidical activity and quote, typically unexciting except for politicians. So you do all this stuff, you earn three and a half million experience points, but then for the low price of half a million experience points, you get to seek a successor, give it all up, and then become what's known as a Hierophant Druid. Okay, so let's pause there for a moment. Now, I do think it's interesting that druids may have some sort of a meta-hierarchy. Kind of like monks, you know, the monks have the, you know, they they have to progress up their levels and eventually defeat their master kind of thing, you know. And I think it's druids do that as well. I've always been fascinated by that, we have to fight to, you know, or we have to overcome or prove that we're more powerful. It almost kind of implies in a way that although druids are cast as neutral, it almost seems chaotic in nature. And I kind of like how it floats on that border there. I've I've always thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about it, the druids have kind of a, a... Meta hierarchy, much like the high table from the John Wick movies, this kind of this mysterious thing where, you know, these mysterious figures work from, you know, everybody loves the Illuminati, you know, that kind of thing. So so that's pretty cool. But Unearthed Arcana takes this supposed highest level overseeing all the druids and then says, oh, guess what, guys? (laughs) It's really boring to do this. So they're going to earn an additional one and a half million experience points to reach level 15 and then earn another half a million to get out of the job that they earned in the first place because it's boring. What? (laughs) The way it's written, it seems kind of odd. Now... I don't know why they did that or what the logic of it is. Well, I, I think I understand why. It's because they wanted players to get excited about being Hierophant Druids. So what are Hierophant Druids? Well, let me read you real quick the abilities that the Hierophant Druids which you are a Hierophant Druid, Hierophant Initiate, Hierophant Adept Master, Numinous Hierophant, Mystic Hierophant, Arcane Hierophant, and then finally, when you have earned yet another three and a half million experience points, which is where we get to the seven million experience that you need in your campaign, you can now be the Hierophant of the Cabal in which you will have 15 D8 plus eight hit points. And what do you get? Well, you'll get immunity to all natural poisons, extra longevity, vigorous health, and you can alter your appearance at will. That's at 16th level. 17th level, you gain the ability to hibernate and enter the elemental plane of earth, as well as conjure a water elemental. At 18th level, you get the ability to enter the plane of fire and conjure an air elemental. At 19th, you get to enter the Plane of Water and conjure a Magma Smoke Paraelemental. At 20th, you get to enter the Plane of Air and conjure an Ice Ooze Paraelemental. At 21st level, you gain the ability to enter all para-elemental levels. At 22nd, gain the ability to enter the plane of shadow. And finally, at 23rd level, you can enter any of the inner planes that you feel like entering. You roam the inner plane of probability lines, and you can dwell on the plane of concordant opposition, all as for the plane of earth above. in other words... You get to set Minecraft on mode spectator plus mode creative. And there's a lot about conjuring elementals. So basically, uh, Earth Arcana lays out the rules of being able to conjure those elementals. So, in a sense, Unearthed Arcana casts the druid as a plane walker, someone who can move from plane to plane and wield incredible power through their arrays of six spells per level, and you're conjuring elementals and controlling them and whatnot. That's a different view of a druid that I had. I always thought of Druids from, obviously, the Celtic legends, and then, interestingly enough, when I've been reading on Appalachia mythology, there is a lot of Druidic themes and actual references to Druids in that mythology. Um, Take a book, The, uh, The Old Gods Awakened by Manly Wade Wellman. That was very much about the protagonist opposing two Druidic brothers who were black magic wielders influencing the lands and they were connected with mysterious and threatening gods and whatnot, maybe close to the old ones, elder gods kind of thing. That's how I kind of see druids. Yue doesn't necessarily step away from that, but it really seems to push you into a different direction. You know, I always kind of thought of magic users, the high-level magic users, as being the ones who would walk the planes and influence those things, not druids. It, it almost seems like that in our arcana it was decided that druids were going to take that role, and I'm not really sure why. I, I Perhaps I should go and look up the Dragon Magazine article that, d- if this change to druids came from uh, Dragon Magazine, I should do a little research on that. I'm not sure I understand the logic of that and I'm not sure I like that. So how would I include this Unearthed Arcana stuff into my campaign for the Druid? Well, I like the idea of the 15th level Druid Kind of being the overseer of all, the you know, the highest member of the high table, if you will. That that's kind of cool, and and I could see where if I have multiple continents in my campaign, that that might come into play. I don't know yet if my lone druid player Courtney will ever get to there. We'll see, but it, it's a possibility. I. Don't think that the higher font levels would fit into my campaign. For one, the cosmology is all different. I only have four planes in my campaign, whereas AD&D had a great number, and if you get the... Uh, the supplement that deals with the planes, uh, you can find out there's a whole ton of them. And and they don't fit. So I don't see how those extra classes would work. So no, I don't think I would use them. And note to Courtney, sorry. <laughs> You'll just have to settle for being the big kahuna, you know, p- politics and all that is versus being a, a hierophant. Next in UA, after the Druid, On page 18, we have the fighter and the infamous or famous weapon specialization. What UA essentially lays out is that you trade proficiency slots in order to specialize in one very specific weapon. And what that gives you is bonuses on to hit and damage as well as number of attacks per round. Now, the note is that only fighters, the base class or the ranger subclass, get this type of ability. I thought that was interesting that it was rangers got it, but I think it has to do with the bow specialization that they really wanted to push that towards the ranger. This section lays out how that works for melee weapons, you get a plus one to hit, plus two to damage, and then instead of level one through six, you getting one attack per round in your specialized weapon. If it's a melee weapon, you get three attacks uh, for every two rounds. It remains the same with the bow that you get two shots every one round and so on, but it, it does allow you to, as you move up in levels, to get some additional attacks. Another thing that this weapon specialization rule does is that it lays out some special rules for bows and crossbows and introduces the concept of a point-blank range in addition to the usual short, medium, and long range. So for a bow, that would be from 6 feet to 30 feet. And for a crossbow, that would be from 6 feet to 60 feet, which actually does away with short, so you go straight from point blank to medium to long range for a crossbow. You also can opt for what's known as double specialization, kind of like double secret probation, double specialization, and that is only with a melee weapon. And only for melee weapons. So when you qualify for a new weapon proficiency, instead of taking that extra slot, you would just say, I'm going to do the double specialization, say a longsword, And now you get a plus three to hit and a plus three for damage as compared to the plus one to hit and plus two to damage. And that's really it in a nutshell, uh, there's uh, a chart here that lays out the uh, new number of attacks per round, which essentially shifts it up uh, for melee weapons, so levels one through six, you get three attacks every two rounds two attacks a round and then five attacks every two rounds, levels one through six, seven through 12, and 13 and above, respectively, and also lays out uh, some different uh, uh, number of attacks per round with bow, like crossbow and and hurled weapons and so on. So we get to the question that perhaps many of my fighters in my campaign want to know, would I allow weapon specialization in my campaign? I have to admit, It is a very attractive perk, Um, especially, you know, fighters have this aura of kind of being the boring class without any little neat twists or perks that some of the other classes get. Um, You know, aside from the fact that fighters can use any weapon, any armor, whole ton of magical items and so on, you know, they're still kind of seen as it's a safe playing choice. So I can understand where this would add a little interesting aspect to it. The thing that gives me pause is a plus one to hit for melee represents a 5% bonus. On top of any strength bonuses that the fighter is likely to have, on top of the fact that the fighter already gets the best progression on the two hit charts, as well Plus two to damage is a pretty nice number. If you figure a weapon's doing, you know, a D6 or a D8, we're talking anywhere from a 25 to 33% bonus to damage. Add on top of that, now you're getting to attack three times every two rounds. So you put that all together, that's starting to push the fighter into some very serious, uh, you know, abilities, especially at first level. I'm one for not necessarily overpowering my players. Um, I run a low fantasy sort of campaign. You really have to grow in levels uh, to become more powerful. You have to, you know, gain legendary mystical weapons that are hard to find because magic's not very... Well, magical items aren't very prevalent in my campaign. So I could see maybe an either or. Maybe you... the character chooses. Do they want to get the plus one to hit and the plus two to damage? Or do they want to get attacks three times every two rounds? Or maybe it's something appropriate that they could start doing at fourth level. You kind of think back to the days of OD&D. Fourth level was kind of a magical level where you were now considered a hero and you were able to do some things much more than you could as being a first through third level where you were just kind of considered just above, you know, a normal person kind of ability. So, uh, you know, I'm still thinking about it and, uh, I'm going to talk to my players and and see what they think. I kind of tend towards the, maybe we'll introduce this when they hit fourth level as versus being something that they would get at first level, but I don't know. Like anything else, I'm not afraid to try something and then take a step back if it doesn't work. So we'll see. So, what do you think? Is a plain walking druid who has to earn 7 million experience points something that fits your campaign? Does a juggernaut paladin strike your fancy? (laughs) Let me know. There's a few ways you can give me feedback. You can leave me a message on my anchor.fm podcast page, or you can call my voicemail. You can send me an email or leave a blog comment, and who knows? uh, I'd like to feature you on a future episode. On a personal note, I hope you all are doing well and keeping safe. Here in Illinois, I'm recording this on the 21st of May, and we're less than 10 days away from some changes in how our quarantine is going to be set up. So we'll see how it goes and how things work out with uh, opening up a little bit more. I know I'm going to continue washing my hands, wearing my mask, and respecting the guidelines that the governor and the local officials are recommending. Um, So far, they've kept me safe. And uh, I see no reason to stop that. So I'll I'll continue doing that. Quick reminder for those of you that are going to be listening to this uh, before the Memorial Day weekend. If you're looking for some great online games this Memorial Day weekend, there's a great convention that's going to help out the convention hosting service known as Tabletop Events. TTE uh, runs campaigns, they provide the scheduling, ticketing services for like Gary Con or North Texas RPG Convention. They got hit hard with the coronavirus cancellations. Uh, All of their business basically canceled on them, and they still have to keep their servers up and running. So they decided to run a Save Our Business convention where the money for badges goes to keeping them running until things start to open up. I'm running two seminars on Saturday and Sunday morning on the Three Hexes campaign starter approach, and that'll be at 10 a.m. Central on both mornings. And I'm running a game on Saturday night and a game on Sunday evening. And I'll put a link on Twitter and on Facebook and in the show notes. But whether you come to my games, I certainly encourage you to check out this convention for this weekend. There's a heck of a lot of great games there that are going to be run. So uh, maybe give you something to do while you're, if you're in the Chicagoland area, it's going to rain all weekend. So maybe this will give you something to do. All right, that's it. So until next time, game on.